I want to start with a quote from Matthew Schlimm um, in a book called This Strange and Sacred Scripture, which I recommend to you. It's a good book. Um, Of all our friends in faith, the Old Testament is easily the quirkiest, he says. This friend is from another culture and speaks with a thick Hebrew accent. There's also quite a generation gap, one that spans over 2,000 years. As soon as the Old Testament begins to speak, our minds fill with questions. Yet we need this oddball of a companion precisely because the Old Testament shatters our expectations and forces us to think about things in new and creative ways. So I think he's put it rather well there. Uh, The idea of the Old Testament as a friend, albeit a rather contradictory and difficult one. It's a helpful and attractive image, I think, there. Schlimm makes the point that this is a friend who is brutally honest, who is unafraid to tackle difficult topics, is a male chauvinist, a legalistic prude, is confused and contradictory at times, is intense about anger and grief and so on. Its authority is such that, like a very close friend, we should sit up and listen when it challenges us, and we should care about what it thinks. So Schlimm encourages us to bring this quirky friend more closely into our lives. So in order to validate this claim, I think it is time for a few nice bits of the Old Testament. So what better place to look for some more edifying morality from the Old Testament than in the prophets? So I'm turning now uh, to a more redeeming passage on social justice and right relationships in Amos. So somebody's going to read, are they not, um, a bit of Amos? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Amos chapter 5, verses 6 to 15. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and it will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. Ah, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground, the one who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash out against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who reproves in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Well, unlike some parts of uh, the Old Testament, the prophets are an important source of morality, both in their own time and today. 
and their bias towards the poor is well known and has been taken up by many a preacher or teacher over the centuries. Although it might seem obvious to extrapolate present-day morality from these texts, one needs to take care not to do so directly without understanding the context. It's too easy to pick out the good bits and find moral guidance there uh, and to overinterpret those parts, perhaps, to the neglect of others. So, as with difficult texts, there's a need for that same caution uh, as we approach them. Amos was a prophet who fought for social justice in his time, which was the 8th century BCE. So we're after the main period of the uh, David and Solomon there, but uh, in the 8th century when the northern kingdom was at its peak. He castigated those who looked only to their own gain and their own self-aggrandizement, calling the opulent women of the day the fat cows of Bashan. He did not mince his words. He was uh, obviously someone who spoke his mind. And this is a good example, this passage we've just heard, of his prophetic fervour. So this passage is about choices. The people of Israel are offered a choice. Either you seek God or you face judgment. Seeking God is not just a religious commitment, it's a moral one too. So he's saying, you know, it's no good taking your sacrifices every week to the temple. You've got to have the right heart behind it. It's no good going through the motions of going to church. There's got to be uh, a proper attitude and care and concern behind that. So this is uh, the emphasis that Amos, preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, wanted to make to the people. It's a kind of either-or choice. At the time, the society clearly was quite corrupt. He describes that, that the rich were getting richer at the expense of the poor, and people had lost sight of their moral as well as their religious commitments. And in verses 6 to 7, the refrain, seek the Lord and live, is heard again, expressing a hope that repentance might be possible and judgment averted. The particular threat here is the judgment of fire against the house of Joseph. The focus is the shrine of Bethel, which has particular connotations with the tribe descended from Joseph. It's the same shrine that was founded by Abraham when he rested there on his journey from Haran to Israel. And these are outlying shrines. There's the main shrine in Jerusalem, but then there are also uh, the shrines outlying. And in the 8th century, those other shrines were very important. The, the chief importance of Jerusalem hadn't really emerged at that point. But because they were, there were numerous shrines, the possibility of um, falling into sin, uh, becoming places where idolatry occurred or people started worshipping the wrong gods uh, was more likely. Uh, so these were places where sometimes the worship of Baal, a god of thunder, was perpetrated. So it was hard for the central priestly administration to keep an eye on all these shrines and so the worship they accommodated quickly well, uh, fell into malpractice. So this judgment is a matter of both kind of cultic impropriety at the shrines and also moral impropriety of the, the ethics of the people who are purporting to believe in God and do the right thing, but they're not necessarily doing so. So it's a kind of ethical code that goes with the uh, correct observance. Justice and righteousness are the two key virtues stressed over and over again in the prophets. These are being compromised 
just as the ownership of the shrine itself is compromised. And it's clear from the passage that the inhabitants of Israel don't take very kindly to this critique. Um, they don't like this chastisement from this prophet, and the prophet, of course, says that he speaks in the name of God, so it's essentially God's chastisement. Those who dare to speak out in reproof receive criticism, and the person who dares to speak the truth is shunned. The reason is that those perpetuating misdeeds don't wish to examine their consciences. The social sins committed are listed. The wealthy and the powerful trample on the poor, and this cannot continue. They've built grand houses to live in, but the coming judgment is such that they will not be able to live in them, says Amos. They've planted vineyards hoping for the fruit of the vine to give them wine, but they will not see that day because God is going to judge. So here's a message of judgment, the judgment of God upon this people who have clearly behaved in ways that are not acceptable to God. So the issue of morality looms large here. What is the motivation for doing right? Israel is said to have transgressed all decent behavior. There's a kind of universal law that op operating here, even though specific transgressions of the law have also taken place. God notices the sins committed because nothing escapes God's all-seeing eye. The righteous are afflicted by the unrighteous. Bribery is rife and the needy are ignored. The whole atmosphere is one of distrust and evil doing. It's the kind of time when those who are right thinking have to lie low because they're in danger of being sought out and punished. This sounds, again, familiar in the modern context, where good people often live in fear of their lives for no other reason than they are the few who hold on to what they believe to be right. And the passage ends on this very positive note of seek good. The reward for good behaviour is nothing less than life itself. So it's a choice between life and death. Your exhortation is to opt for life and receive the support of God. Seeking good means hating evil and actively working against it. And the society needs a moral underpinning where justice is paramount. Then, Amos says, it, the whole order falls into place once that's there. Um, people can live their lives in peace. There may only be a small number of the tribe of Joseph left to receive God's blessing by the end of the process, but they will be the faithful remnant and will be the recipients of God's promise. And this links up with the last chapter of Amos in chapter 9, where he speaks about all nations shall be called by my name. And in that theme is taken up in uh, Isaiah 40 to 55, with sentiments such as, I will give you to a light, as, as a light to all the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6, and turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. So these, this is another, eight, Isaiah is another 8th century prophet. Uh, uh, this section of Isaiah, the second section is possibly a bit later at the exile. Uh, but these sentiments are all taken up by the prophets uh, of this period. Isaiah is a favourite prophecy amongst Christians, as it has many inspiring and relevant nice bits for our reflection and engagement. But that's my taster of prophecy, and I'm not going to dwell on that further. I want to move on to the Psalms and then a taste of the wisdom literature, uh, which is my specialist home. 
so we're going to move on now to snippets, really, of each of three psalms, uh, just to give us a flavour of different types of psalm in the Old Testament. And these, of course, we're very familiar with in Christian liturgy because they're so often uh, read and sung and recited in, uh, in church. The book of the Psalms, just before we read the first one, represents a microcosm of the Old Testament, in my view. I think if we only had the Psalms, we would have quite a good picture of the whole range of emotions and um, situations that we find in the Old Testament. It reflects, in some ways, the diversity of interest of the entire canon. Of course, there's reference to the history of Israel at times, much mention of God, and some difficult verses too, uh, quite a few Psalters excise the last two verses of Psalm 137, for example. Um, that's perhaps the most infamous. It also contains many laments and thanksgivings. Some Psalms relate to morality, some praise God as creator, some reflect the law. So there's a huge repository of Israelite experience in the Psalter. And so to give a flavour of this diversity, I just want to read uh, parts of... Of, of three psalms. Someone coming to read a bit of Psalm 147? I think we just said the first part now. Yes. Not the whole thing. It's, it's rather too long. <laughs> I, I can read more, but I've been given uh, ah. Psalm 147, uh, 1 to 6, and then I'm going to read Psalm 77, uh, verses 1 to 15. And also the one in the middle. Would you like me to read the one in the middle as well? Okay, yes. I'll read that as well. Uh, Psalm 147, praise for God's care for Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. And Psalm 119, 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And Psalm 77. God's mighty deeds recalled to the leader according to Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. Selah. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? 
Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. And I say, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the, among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Well, let's start with Psalm 147. Let's begin on a positive note. The Psalms in the last section of the Psalter are all about praise and glory and all that God does for people. Psalm 147 begins with praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, and it describes God as gracious. The psalm is largely about what God does for his city of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is simply the magnet that acts as a home for the afflicted and the outcast. The psalmist conveys God's kindness. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Contrasting this with God's greatness, and thereby drawing out attention familiar to us in these varying pictures of God. He gives praise to God as creator and provider of all things, including rain for the earth and food for the animals. Again, he expresses the sentiments of those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. And these two ideas of fear, fear of the Lord and God's steadfast love, keep recurring. This is what God expects from his followers, and he gives back fidelity and love in return. This is probably a late psalm in the way that it brings together the themes of salvation, creation, and the focus on Jerusalem, late in the period of the Old Testament at least, um, and yet it shows the kind of complex theological synthesis that was going on in the thought of the Old Testament as ideas about God developed and changed over time. And then we had a taste of Psalm 119. You probably know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. Take you a long time to read that. It's also an alphabetic acrostic, so it's, uh, it's actually being composed according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so there's a certain um, poetic quality about it that many psalms perhaps lack. Uh, I chose a section largely concerned with law. Um, when I say this psalm is concerned with law, I'm referring not concerned with the letter of the law, but the fact that it's about God's law and God's justice and human response to that law. So it's not a narrow, constrictive law, nor does the psalm refer to a specific body of law, such as the Ten Commandments. Rather, the law is seen as freely given by God and freely received by human beings. It's all-embracing. God is lawgiver, and law is the guidance on offer to human beings to help them through life. So really, law means morality in this context. Like the idea in the wisdom tradition that God plans the steps of human beings behind the scenes. So this psalm has a wider view of law than one might expect if one simply read the laws of the Pentateuch. It's really a view of God giving to humans a whole sense of morality and a desire uh, to be in relationship with him. It's God's advice for human existence. 
In Psalm 100, um, verse 105, your word is the utterance of God. It's the same word that brought creation into being in Genesis 1, or which punishes rebellion. Maybe another way of referring to God's legal commandments, as in Old Testament law, but it probably also has the wider sense of the totality of God's purpose for his people. So the psalmist here is speaking in reverential tones of the idea that God's word is a lamp and a light. The lamp which illuminates the darkness. The light is more than physical, it is enlightenment that ensues. And the language of feet and paths used here is reminiscent of the language of Proverbs, where wisdom guides the worthy person along her path, along the right path, whereas the path of the wicked is covered in thorns in Proverbs 4. The psalmist takes the keeping of God's law or ordinances very seriously in verse 106. The suppliant swears an oath, another oath, <laughs> that cannot be withdrawn. There is no question that God's laws could be anything but righteous, even though the psalmist is in fact feeling afflicted. So the psalmist here is, is showing a kind of inner turmoil. He's loyal to God. He wants to be in relationship with God. He feels that the law should be his moral guide to life. Uh, but he himself is afflicted because perhaps his life doesn't quite match up to his, his own expectations. So this is clearly the source from which he gains his morality. But he's in distress, as we're told in verse 107. Perhaps he's suffering from illness. He asks God for life presumably meaning that he wants his life back for the, from the weakened and distressed state that he feels himself to be in. God is the sole source, not only of the law, which encompasses all aspects of life, but of life itself. The psalmist has sworn this oath to God and expects God, the giver of life to, to faithful servants, to keep faith with him in return. The use of word echoes the opening verse. The psalmist longs for that enlightening word that always guided him in the past. In verse 108, there's a hint of a sacrificial oath in the use of the expression offerings of praise. Although, of course, these could be ver verbal offerings, alternatively. So there's a strong note of praise in this psalm. The psalmist trusts in God's presence, and even when he's severely afflicted, uh, he's still loyal to his God. This psalmist is not complacent, but he's always learning. He asks God to teach me your ordinances. This is an important point, isn't it, of, of, of teaching, learning all the time, increasing one's knowledge of God. He knows God's law on one level, but he's unaware of the extent of it in its fullness and revelation. He believes in God's goodness and in the goodness of God's law, which, even in his darkest moments, is not to be forgotten. The temptations of the wicked are all around. He uses the language of snares, which recalls traps for animals, um, as in Proverbs 1, and temptations of all types. But the loyal God-fearer will not stray. Danger and determination characterise these ver verses. So for this psalmist, there's not much um, thought of straying far, we get the impression here of someone who's very loyal to God um, and God's precepts and God's decrees, both synonyms for God's law. They are, like God's word, his greatest joy. This, this psalmist can't imagine life without them and he will do anything to hold on to that happiness. He's determined to obey God's statutes, 
and the, his heart is the expression of his will. So this is about endurance and loyalty and commitment in the long term. This may be a later psalm as well. It's thought that Psalm 119 possibly came together over quite a long period and may uh, consist of different parts composed at different times. Um, there's not a stress on king and on the king in this psalm, which you might expect if the king there was a king. So it's more on the temple and the law, which would be a later concern of their of theirs. It has a personal aspect, like many psalms, that draws us into the faith experience of the individual. And that's why it's quite a popular psalm, actually. Um, it's reflective, it's individual or communal. Um, it's about individual human experience, but it's experience that others can tune into. It clearly has elements of lament, um, and we can find many examples of lament in the Psalter. And, and then the next, the next Psalm, 77, is definitely a lament. Um, so I just drew that in as a, a further example here of a more of a lamenting type of psalm. Uh, so then turning to Psalm 77 here, uh, here is somebody much more troubled, isn't it, than Psalm 119. This is someone who really um, is suffering. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. Many people have drawn comparisons between this psalm and the book of Job. This is an extreme example then of a lament from the depths of affliction and despair. The psalmist feels cast off by God because there is remembrance of happier times. This psalm is interesting because it sets out various expectations of what God is usually like or ought to be like. Because it sets out what the suppliant expects of God. You know, he's looking back and saying, well, we used to have such a good relationship, but what's happened now? You know, it's really gone badly wrong. The psalmist expects God to be favourable towards him, to show steadfast love and give promises that will be kept. God is normally gracious, compassionate, full of wonders and mighty deeds, showing a holy way, working wonders, displaying might and a strong arm in the deliverance of the descendants of Jacob and Joseph in verse 15. God is also the creator. Let us not forget that powerful creator God who made the waters of the deep tremble and caused thunder and lightning, as well as leading his chosen people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in the context of lament, and with the purpose of calling for a return to former happiness, the psalm is asking, why have these things gone? Why are these characteristics of God that he knows to be good and true, why are they hidden? And this psalm displays an interesting mix of genres. It's grounded in the history of Israel. It mentions some of the ancestors. It also mentions God's creation and his salvific acts in creation. And yet the context is very personal and trusting. Uh, like in Psalm 119, the psalmist will not be cowed by affliction. And this is um, why people have drawn comparison between this psalm and Job, because Job too makes known with a lot of moaning and complaining the afflictions that he's suffering, but he too is saying, well, God has not always been like this to me. He was very favourable towards me once. Uh, so it's that same uh, juxtaposition of what one expects and what one is not getting. 
There's a depth of emotion in the Old Testament lament that is at once startling and yet strangely reflective of real human life with all its hardships and tragedies. So that neatly brings me to the book of Job, and I've chosen a passage which is not uh, one of Job's laments, because I thought we'd had enough lament by now, but actually a part of the God speeches about creation. Someone going to read that for me? Yeah. So it's Job 38, verses 25 to 30. Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives, on the desert which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground put forth grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Well, I think the book of Job is probably the most profound book in the Old Testament. It's certainly the one that I've spent most time with, having done a PhD on it and, uh, and still talking about it. <laughs> um, here, I want to focus on this speech from God, which is a less well-known part of the book. Uh, it's part of the section... Um, 38 to 41, in fact, of the book of Job. This is 38, 25 to 30, which is just a, a small part of it. As well as being a book about human suffering and how to comprehend it, the book of Job contains a peon of praise to God as creator. And it goes in depth into God's creation of animals, wild and domesticated. And this is a speech ostensibly spoken by God to Job uh, in a whirlwind, answering Job with questions about his knowledge in relation to the great works of creation. Uh, the all-seeing and all-knowing nature of God is stressed, and in these verses, God's questions to Job continue. He says, God says to Job, who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? It's a rhetorical question because it expects the answer, you do, God. Sorry, I even questioned it. We can all remember very wet days when the water seems to charge from the sky and immediately channels are cut in the earth that drain the water away. In a hot climate, this process is more noticeable as the dry earth is hardly able to take the water and the flooding can be more dramatic. So we're reminded here that God is in charge of this process. Quite a detailed process, really, cutting a channel for the torrents of rain. God is mindful of that kind of detail. The passage goes on to state that God even brings rain on a land where no one lives, on a desert which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground put forth grass. And this is an interesting sentiment because it suggests that rain even falls where there's no human being or, or very, and very little life in general. Um, God's action is not just for the benefit of human beings, it's also for the benefit of animals and the land. And it reminds us perhaps that God's creation is not just for us, uh, it's not just for our benefit. This is a challenging idea that God's sustenance of the earth may not always be centred on human beings. Nature is there for its own sake, and God rejoices in what he has made. Rain comes in the heart of the desert, 
to give vegetation water and to bring life out of dryness. And then in the next verse, we're reminded of that early morning freshness when dew forms a covering to all plants and to the grass, giving essential moisture to the earth. God is responsible for that too, we're being told here. There's an interesting use of masculine and feminine images together in verses 28 to 9 and 29. God is the father of the rain and dew, we're told, but ice comes forth from God's womb too. This would perhaps suggest a more gender-inclusive picture of the Old Testament God (laughs) than many have realised. The image of the womb is continued with the idea of giving birth to hoarfrost, the really thick frost that will turn water to hard ice. So here in Job we're given great detail about the wonders of the created world. And of course it was the world as they knew it then. It was the, the world as they observed it. Um, not as, as we might do in modern scientific terms. Admittedly, it's in the context of a put-down to Job, because God's saying, well, here am I doing all these creative acts, and who are you to question me? Where were you when I created the earth? Um, but actually, although it's put in terms of that put-down, it's giving us an amazing insight into the created world, the creative acts of God in the Old Testament. And uh, this is one of my little soapbox things about uh, people who look at creation in the Old Testament. They only look at Genesis 1 and Genesis. They never look at here in Job 38 to 41, and it's a most wonderful description of the creation of the world. So, in conclusion, I've tried to give you a small taste of some Old Testament texts, but you can see that I've barely scratched the surface of this huge collection of texts. I've likened the Old Testament uh, in my book to a jigsaw puzzle. One can keep adding pieces to make a greater whole, and it's so large that there are always new pieces to find, new corners to explore, new insights to be had. I find that myself, you know, I've been teaching the Old Testament for some years now, but there's always some new passage that I haven't read before or or some fact or image or something which which adds to the picture that I already have in in my mind. To be sure, not all of its pages are edifying. And if we are, like Dawkins, looking for morality, it would be hard to transcribe directly from that very different world to our own. It's clear that it does depend on one's choice of texts. If we choose texts that are more accessible and more applicable, then they will speak to us despite those cultural and chronological differences. But if we choose difficult texts, then at least we might have some chance of understanding why they're not morally acceptable today. And one important point is that ideas did change over the Old Testament period. They moved on and developed. Because that period is, a, is a, a long time, ostensibly from, well, it, it depends when the Exodus happened. Some people don't think it did happen at all. Some people date it to about 1300 BCE. I mean, take that as a good starting point. You're going all the way from 1300 BCE right down to the first century at the time of Christ. So that, that's a huge period of time for these texts to have formed. Uh, and during that time, um, people... We, we find a society that was at first tribal, and we have tribal stories, tribal tales. We have the period of the judges. 
We then have the period of the kingship. Uh, we have prophets, uh, a big booming of prophecy uh, in the 8th and 7th centuries, and then it seems to have died away. And the sobering experience of exile that made the Israelite people rethink and reflect about their beliefs. And by the time of the New Testament, rather different aspects of God's character had emerged. And they were wanting, perhaps, to talk more in terms of a, of a loving God, God in relationship, God through the temple and its liturgies, uh, different aspects that prepare the way, perhaps, for the writing of the New Testament. Um, so in that sense, I think the character of the Christian God is shaped by the character of God in the Old Testament. In a Christian context, much Old Testament morality is recontextualized and is often redundant in moral terms. Although texts are still of value as story, as history, or as a life lesson from the past. In one sense, we do get many of our morals from both Testaments, even if it's not in a direct line. Morality of this type, along with other types of engagement with texts, is mediated through centuries of tradition, reflection and consideration in changing contexts. So I've tried to show what a kind of rich diet the Old Testament offers. In the face of attack, its worst aspects can be highlighted and quickly dismissed, but with a more patient, sustained engagement, its riches start to emerge. The Old Testament is a complicated set of texts, varied, contradictory, but I think above all realistic of life in all its messiness. And so I think Matthew Slim is right, it can be our friend, even if it is a rather challenging and contradictory one at the end of the day.